Press the red one to, to start recording. Right? Okay. Oh, I think I've mentioned this a couple of times now um, that Milton's shadow is um, his life was carried forward in an amazing way. He had extraordinary influence after he died. Um, the, the romantic poets looked at him as a, as a watermark. Uh, um, um, after England came out of the Civil Wars and settled in some sense and moved forward, it, um, it takes on a different character um, you can we can see the influence of science in the country in England in the West generally. All of the Romantic poets are reacting to the way in which science has co-opted reason. They they've made it a one-dimensional thing, so that it it seemed to be the only way reason could be used anymore after that time after the Copernican Revolution. So most of the poets writing after Milton are turning to another power. Most of them turn to the imagination because reason is something they identify with the sciences at this point. All of them loved Milton because of his, um, his courage and his independence. Um, we know that the church begins to take on an established character and loses some of its vigor and strength. We've talked about this briefly. The, remember the Tractarian movement that takes place in the 19th century comes about because the church has gotten too soft. Um, um, the, the general populace is aware of it. These men stepped forward in an effort to try to reform the church, and out of that movement came a number of major conversions. John, John Henry Newman, Gerard Manny Hopkins, and a number of other people. Blake is at the beginning of this romantic <clears throat> movement, and he's a, he's a poet um, who, who sees himself as, in some ways, truthfully, as the heir to Milton that it's important that what Milton did not be lost. So um, he, he writes with the same kind of fervor and the same convictions that he's going to write a prophetic kind of poetry, okay? So he's one of the early romantics. Blake, um, Shelley, Wordsworth, Coleridge, Byron, those are the major romantic poets. Blake comes early in this, and out of that whole group, he's the one who's most um, overtly prophetic. He's the one who most closely sees himself as coming out of Milton. Okay, and you'll see that in a second in, in, in some of his poems. So I want to read just a couple of his poems today. Turn to the, to the Blake poems. I'm going to come back at some other point when we're doing Dante and read the rest of these, but just for tonight, take a look on on the back page of the first page from Jerusalem and from Milton. Any of you see the movie Chariots of Fire? Who said that? Me. <laughs> you and I are soulmates. Get, 
Give me a give me a favorite line from that movie, can you? Oh, you mean the disparaging thing they said about the French? Chariots of Fire? Yeah. Give me a give me, you give me a memorable line. I go ahead. We didn't know about these frogs. Oh. Something like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I remember I was over in France studying, and I took that to my mother to see Virgil Original because it's dubbed over there. So it's nice. So I was reading the French dub lines, and they did not say that. Yeah. When you talked about going, I've forgotten about the passage. When you said that, my mind went immediately to the meeting later when they, they had him in the room, I think with the prince and the, you know, whoever. Oh, prince, yes. And the prime, whoever it was, and, and made it clear to him that whatever he did, he had to do it for the king, king first and not God. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember the line, but. Yes, yeah. Oh, he was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> let me give you my favorite line in that, because I love that movie. Love it. If, if, any, if any of you haven't seen that movie and want to see a great, great movie, Chariots of Fire. Stunning, stunning movie. What's picture of the year for that Yeah, yeah. Music is wonderful. The story is wonderful. Anyway, it's about this, um, I think, Presbyterian, evangelical Christian who is lightning fast, who loves to run because he loves God. And the counterpart to him is a Jewish man who loves to run but who's very academic, intellectual, and who gets trainers to teach him. So he's, he's, uni, he's using technical means, artificial means, external means. Eric Little, the, the Scotsman who loves God, runs from his heart. That's just the way he is. And he's got an amazing record. He's beating everybody. Nobody can beat him. And he gets drawn into this competition that eventually leads him to the Olympics. And on the, on the passage over, he finds out that he has to run on the Sabbath. And be, given his, the strictness of his beliefs, he cannot do it. So the, the English try to persuade him that if he, if he does that, he's going to let down his king, which is not the most important thing in his life. It's gone. So it's full of tensions. And the music at the end, when we see the Olympics and these men who are running with less inspiration than Eric Little is to watch their failures, and it, it's a stunning movie. Anyway, in the middle of the movie, when he gets drawn into this world of competition, um, his sister, who's very evangelical, committed to Christ, goes to him worried that he's losing his sense of God as he, as he commits himself to running. And the two of them are out on a field one day, and she is deeply sad and deeply grieved, and, and expresses her grief that she thinks she's losing her brother, that He's drifting away from Christ. Um, you can imagine how, what a soreness that would be. And he turns to her, and in that moment, he, got, he says, um, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. I'll never forget those words ever. God made me fast, and when I run, um, I feel his pleasure. Stunning line. Early on in the movie, it shows Eric Little in a race where some guy knocks him over, and it puts him out of the race by at least 20 yards. He scrambles to his feet with no hope of getting back in the race and sets off. And, and you, it's, not a, it's not a polished technique. It's, it's like he's running with the spirit at him, and there's nothing going to hold him back, and he ends up winning the race. It's that kind of man. Oh, and by the way, the guy who played Eric Little was gay, homosexual. And he said that that 
playing that role was so overpowering to him that it led to his conversion. Stunning movie, stunning movie. Anyway, to keep that in mind as you read these, or as you hear these lines from Milton. Um, or sorry, Blake. From Jerusalem, England awake, awake, awake. Wait, wait, sorry. Now remember, according to Christianity, and remember we've talked about the importance of the city. According to any Christian living in any land, any nation, the one thing that they would hope to see in that nation is Jerusalem settled there. New York, London, San Francisco, Beijing. That the, the, the ultimate end is the New Jerusalem and every city on the earth should in some ways be participating in that final city. If not, it's losing its call to holiness. And what Blake is aware of, remember that he's looking around and he's seeing an industrial revolution take place and he identifies um, the industrial revolution with the, with the machinery and the mechanical ways and, um, that are impo inflicting their ways on men so that men are becoming themselves mechanical. He, he associates those with satanic mills. These inhuman mills turning out this stuff, but the cost of it is human life. So, from Jerusalem, England, awake, awake, awake. Jerusalem, thy sister calls. Why wilt thou sleep the sleep of death and close her from thy ancient walls? The hills and valleys felt her feet gently upon their bosoms move. Thy gates behold sweet Zion's ways. Then was a time of joy and love. And now the time returns again. Our souls exult in London's towers. Receive the Lamb of God to dwell in England's green and pleasant bowers. This passage is from his poem, On Milton. That's how much he thought of him, that he devoted a poem to him, a large poem. And did those... Now remember, he's envisioning a time when England was more innocent, more Christian, and aware that it's lost that place historically in time. Picture us, you know, a city on a hill in 18th century, 1776, when we go to war to recover a new kind of identity as a people and, and where we are now in comparison to that point. Okay. From Milton. And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountains green? And was the Holy Lamb of God on England's pleasant pastures seen? And did the continents divine shine forth upon our clouded hills? And was Jerusalem builded here among these dark satanic mills? Bring me my bow of burning gold. Bring me my arrows of desire. Bring me my spear, O clouds unfold. Bring me my chariot of fire. I will not cease from mental flight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. You could feel the force of this. I mean, what he wants for himself, for his country. I mean, he, so he, he, like Milton, he sees himself as a poet like Jeremiah or any of the, you know, any of the poets from the Old going to the people and rousing them um, because England's losing its way. Turn back to the first page, to the first poem, the introduction from Songs of Innocence. 
Milton had several collections, or sorry, Blake had several collections. One collection was called Songs of Innocence, and the other was called Songs of Experience. The Songs of Innocence are just that. They're, they're poems about childlike innocence. The Songs of Experience are songs about a darkness, something that happens as people grow older and they lose that innocence. There was an intermediary group, but the, the, the ones that he's most known for are the Songs of Innocence and Songs of Experience. This poem, I've chosen it because you'll see why, and you'll see its relevance to Milton and what we're doing too. This poem is the first poem in the beginning of that collection of Songs of Innocence, because that's the first collection, okay? Now notice what's happening here. Um, he begins piping, playing on a pipe. He's using a musical instrument to play a song. Remember, we've been talking about poetry and how important music is to poetry. Uh, an angel appears to him and, and says something to him and asks him to do something. Um, and watch the progression because he goes from piping to a form that's more universal so that his prophetic word can reach a larger audience. This poem is important because it shows you that Milton is aware of a call, Blake is aware of a calling. And this poem's an expression of that calling. That somebody came to him and asked him to do something and it led to a progression of stages that brings him to this point, okay? Introduction. Piping down the valleys wild, piping songs of pleasant glee. On a cloud I saw a child and he laughing said to me, Pipe a song about a lamb. We all know what that is, I'm assuming, yeah. Pipe a song about a lamb. So I piped with merry cheer. Piper, pipe that song again. So I piped. He wept to hear. This is how moved the angel was by human playing that music to a lamb. Drop thy pipe, thy happy pipe. Sing thy songs of happy cheer. So I sung the same again while he wept with joy to hear. Piper, sit thee down and write in a book that all may read. So he vanished from my sight, and I plucked a hollow reed. And I made a rural pen, and I stained the water clear. And I wrote my happy songs, every child may joy to hear. Notice that he, it's a prophetic, it's a, it's a description of his calling, that he began just playing music. Then he's asked to play songs about a, a lamb, and what he does is so moving that the angel weeps. And then the angel asks him to sit down and write so that everybody can read it. And that's what he does. But notice he says, and I wrote my happy song, every child may joy to hear. Now here's the strange thing about Blake. If you read his poems, some of his poems have a special language and if you get into them, there's almost no way to understand them because they have their own, just like Milton, their own private mythology. They're, they're just very, very obscure. You have to study Milton a lot to get through the, to the meaning of it. But most of his lyrics are like this. They're lyrics that a child could read because they're so simple. And it doesn't take any difficulty to read these poems a child. The beauty of them is, the, is their simplicity. And I made a rural pen and I stained the water clear and I wrote my happy songs. Every child made joy to hear. It's as if he's calling out the child in every one of us by this particular kind of poetry. So, 
we're already seeing the influence of Milton going forward with the Romantics. All the Romantics look back to Milton, all of them. Okay, let's get to Milton. How are you guys doing with Milton? <laughs> maybe, I sh maybe I should have ordered a volume of Blake's poems and just done Blake. Yeah, yeah, it's true. The more you, the more you get into it, the easier it gets. Yeah, chapter four is kind of a break. <laughs> you what? Chapter four was kind of a break for me. When you get to four, it starts to go yeah. smoothly. Yeah. You don't have to ponder over things that you don't understand. Yet. Yeah. Remember how true that was for the Iliad? I told everybody who did it. You know, the longer you're in it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Some of you never made it, I think. <laughs> But the longer you're in a work, the more you have to draw it. I mean, it's, it helps you to move forward, yeah. Okay, just a quick, quick review, because I want to get to these book two and three of Milton. For the last couple of weeks, we, we had talked about the currents of thought, the conflicts in the Reformation, and the different ways of looking at Christ and Scripture and the authority of the church and the problems that, that came out of that period. I just want to mention two things going forward, and I actually have this letter of Paul's to the Corinthians on my mind. We'll, when, when we're done, we'll get to it. But one of the things we saw is um, is how problematic faith is. That it's the basis of our relationship with God. That's true for all of us, Catholic, Protestant. The basis of our religion is faith. That we believe faith. Paul's, if I can recall, Paul's definition is. The substance of things, the substance of things hoped for, um, the certification, the assurance of things not seen. The substance of things hoped for, that, or put it, the reality of things hoped for. That our faith is such that we know that God is there. That's absolutely essential be, because if there's not, there will be nothing there to get. You know, faith means we know that there will be something there. It's real. It's the substance of things hoped for and the certification, the certainty of things unseen. Even though we don't see them, we know they're there. So faith means believing in something when we have no reason to believe it. It's beyond our powers of reason. So that's our great gift. That's what draws us to Christ. So a world that relies stead, um, exclusively on reason won't enter into that, because reason can't get there. Reason is a prelude to it in some ways. So faith is problematic. By its very nature, it's a transcendent gift. It's a gift from God, but it can have the effect of isolating people in their faith. Um, and when it becomes the means of interpreting everything, it can cut people off from the natural order, the political natural order. Um, Moreover, if faith is the basis of authority, it's the ground of authority for people, it can become problematic because all the people in a congregation can have different views about what's going on in reality. And it's on the basis of that that churches fragment all the time. Okay? 
So faith is an extraordinary gift. It's also subjective and private. It's the basis of a relationship with God, but it can also cause difficulties. The position of the Catholic Church is that by faith we know the church was founded by Christ. That's, I read that letter from um, that passage, remember, where Christ goes to the disciples and who do they say I am? And um, That Christ establishes his church. He gives Peter the keys and says on this rock, you know, I'll found it. So one of the fundamental differences at issue here is that faith by itself is subjective and whatever happens depends on faith, whatever the person's individual faith is. The church's position is that's not true. There's an objective reality. Christ confirmed it. That's from God. So it, it doesn't just, I mean, as much as our relationship with God depends on it, we also know that there's an objective reality to it in itself. We can't make it whatever we want, um, which very often people can do. It's on the basis of that they can continue to break off churches and make churches whatever they think it should be. So um, one of the fundamental dividing points in the Reformation was this question of faith and its role in the church and whether, whether there was something objective in the church um, um, that was alongside of the faith that was the basis for our relationship with God. So we talked about that a good bit. Um, also that, that what Christ did um, that made Christianity distinct was that he, he, he brought the personhood of divinity, the second person of the Trinity, into human nature, excuse me. And so <coughs> offered a divine love to help fulfill the law. Man can't do that by himself, so he did something with the law that no other religion could do. That's why it, it's, it's sort of ironic when you go into these um, curriculums in universities and, and see, um, oh, like literature's prophecy, <laughs> make it that. Um, um, or, or Christianity is one among other religions. You, know, you can have a course on world religions. If you look at Christianity, it's sui generis. You all know what that word is, do you? Sui generis. By itself, by itself, it, there's no way it can stand with other religions because the, none of the other religions have a God who came down and took on human nature and offered his love and went to a cross. It stands by itself. It, it, it is the truth or Christ was a madman. Either this guy was insane or he did something with law and religion that had never been done before. So what Christ did was um, fulfill the law and answer our sins by taking on our human nature and, and bringing a divine mercy with it. We've talked about that and how important it is to see that that act of atonement would have been incomplete unless he were both man and God. Because the sin was such that only a God could do it, but it had to answer man's sin. So he had to take on the nature, he had, he had to take on man's nature. He had to be fully both divine and human or the atonement would have been incomplete. So. Um, that was the central concern of the Reformation. How do, who is this man? How do we understand him and his church? What did he leave behind?
Um, we, we started looking at the epic last week, just a quick review. Remember, the word epic comes from the Greek word epos, epos. Epos, the Greek, epos. Which means in Greek, a word, a song, simply. But for the Greeks, it, it also had another connotation, that the word was divine. There was, a, there was a sense of a logos, a rationality to everything in nature. And man could grasp it, this logos, this word. And one of the ways in which you could do that is through an epic, an epos, a word. And we know that in the epics, the word has a divine quality to it because every epic poet begins his poem by invoking a god. Homer invokes Calliope. Those of you who've done this know that now, you know. He says, sing goddess, the anger of Achilles' son. Um, in the Odyssey, sing goddess, the man of many ways, Odysseus, this extraordinary man who's going to do all these things. Aeneas, Virgil, sing goddess, fate's fugitive. Aeneas is fleeing from fate. He has, to, he has to flee Troy because Troy is destroyed and go on to found Rome. So every one of those epics um, um, tells a story about humans, but partly through the eyes of a god. That's why we can see the gods intervening in the actions of men, because these poets have been given this special power to show how the gods are helping men to, to answer these problems. Okay. So the epic tradition, by its very nature, has a divine quality to it. You can say it's prophetic in some ways. I believe that. You know that. Those of you who've been with me, that I've gone over this before. If you look at those epics, every one of them ends with a Perusia action. The return of the king, the return of the king, the return of the king, bringing judgment and terror. And um, Achilles brings it, Odysseus brings it, Aeneas brings it. Where did that come from? They didn't know Christ. So. When Milton writes, he's writing with self-consciously aware of this epic tradition. Okay? We saw that last time. His opening invocation, he's doing what all the pagan poets did. He's invoking the spirit to help him tell this story, just the way Homer and Virgil did. He uses an opening invocation. The poem starts in medius race. I put these on the board last time, right? You all know these, yeah? I don't need to put them up again, right? In medius race, in medius race, in the midst of things. And remember, in the midst of things doesn't mean in abstractly in the middle of things. It means, it means, um, we just learned our son is on drugs. And the world that we thought we had under control is temporarily shattered. Um, we thought, <laughs> we thought we were one, with God, I got have trouble seeing. We thought we were one with this wonderful bourgeois ideal that is the ideal of modern America, to live this comfortable, secure life. And, and, and with our Christian background, which is a sign that we've been saved, and then we find out our son is on drugs. How shattering is that? Um, so we're in the midst of things. Suddenly, it's as if some undercurrent comes to the surface to make us aware that things are not as good as we thought they were. And what do we do? So every one of these stories has to do with the disorder of a people of coming to some self-conscious awareness of itself, some disorders, and um, a divinely appointed task 
given to the hero to help answer those disorders. He would be the means of bringing something into this world to answer those disorders. That's what every epic's been about. So Milton's working within that epic convention, but he turns it on his head. Because he doesn't start with an epic hero, he starts with Satan, and moreover, everything he does with Satan resembles what went on with the epic heroes. Achilles at battle, Odysseus searching out something, Aeneas trying to find a new home. So as Milton writes his poem, he's writing it with some awareness of what these other heroes did, so that in some ways, Satan is um, going through those same actions, but at the same time, he is absolutely evil. And one of the things we have to ask ourselves is what, is, what are the implications of that for the way that we look at heroism? Because the pagan epics all showed these men to be really good people. <clears throat> Milton seems to be saying, seems to be, you may think they are, but they're not. Because remember, according to Milton, there is no good, none in the world. We will come to that. He'll say, all corrupt, that that's an illusion on our part. There can be no, you know this from what we did the last couple weeks, there can be no good in the world without Christ. Man's corrupt, he has no free will, he's lost it in the fall, um, he can do nothing good without Christ. So the notion of a virtuous pagan or an inherent good in nature is gone. Okay? Now, two things I want to just ask everybody to keep in mind. Two lines of thought. We've got two problems here that we, that we have to deal with. Um, one has to do with Milton because he's writing and we've talked about the um, Protestant character of so much of what he does. And the, fa the fact that he took this topic, that Milton did something no other poet had done, he went back to the causes of all disorders. So in one sense, his poem is the most universal poem that's ever been written because he goes back to the causes of, that explain everything else. Here's the revolt of Satan from God and what he does in the world. So to read Milton is to go back to the origins of all problems. And we have to look at Milton's treatment of that and Satan and what we, how we look at him. Is he an epic hero? Um, lots of people in the modern world are going to say he's far more heroic, he has far more stature, he's far more compelling to readers than God. God is sitting smugly up on his throne, risking nothing, doing nothing, the sun goes off. Um, here's this extraordinary figure taking all these risks and doing all these things. That's one of the ways in which the modern world looks at, at this poem. So we've got some basic problems that we have to keep with us as we read. That, I mean, just put those out. Now, here's before we turn to, to book two. Here's, I want to remind you all, I've, I've got to put this out. Um, we'll keep coming back to it. And, and in our last class, I, I really want to take this question up full blown. I mean, to me, it, for me, it's the most important thing um, in our work together. We didn't come here to read Milton. We're not. We're not here to read Paradise. I mean, we are, but we're we're here to look at Milton and 
Dante to see if there's something to learn about our faith. And I've told you I'm a little bit uneasy with that because I've never done this before. When I teach Milton, I teach Milton without a catechetical motive. Now I'm raising all these questions about Protestant Catholic. So I, I just want to put this out there. We're not here just to read Milton to enjoy a poem. One of the questions is, is there something to learn about the Protestant sensibility, the Protestant mind, and the Catholic mind when we read Dante that helps us understand our faith, where we are in the modern world? So whatever we're doing, I'm asking that we all keep that concern in mind, okay? And I'm saying that nervously because I, I wrestle with these, <laughs> here the conversation we have at home, I wrestle with these daily. It's, it's one of the most troubling things. When, when I read Milton, I keep asking what to make of this. Is, is, does this reflect something Protestant? Because nobody, Milton's not going, this is Protestant, this is Protestant, this. He's telling a story about the fall. Um, Dante's not going to say, this is Catholic, this is Catholic, this is Catholic. My question is, can we draw something from what they've done that throws a light on our faith? Okay? I hope that's clear. Reading Milton, in some ways, is infinitely easier than what I'm asking. I hope that's clear. It's much easier to read Milton. To read Milton and then ask, is, how do we look at this? What does it tell us? Is there something Protestant? You have to infer that or, I mean, there, he's going to have serious critiques against the Catholic Church in here. We're going to see one of he, He's very critical of the church. I'm not talking about that. <clears throat> I want to look at these poems and, and see if there's something to learn about our faith and the difficulties we have in the modern world. So we have got to read Milton well, and we've got to read Dante well. But that's our concern, okay? It's not just reading Milton to, to enjoy a poem, a great classic. Okay? Okay, let's look at, let's look at book, book two. You guys help yourself. Um, sorry we didn't bring any wine tonight. Remember when book two, book one ended, um, the devils had met in pandemonium in the, in the council room, and book two begins um, with the council itself. So um, we, we enter this council chamber now, and we see Satan sitting on a throne, addressing the demons and asking what they're going to do now because they've all found themselves in hell, they've lost the battle in heaven. By the way, in Medius Race, the battle's already taken place. Middle of the poem, we'll go back to it. So we're gonna actually change, shift, make a shift in time and we'll get back to the battle. But right now we're in the midst of things. And the problem the demons are facing is what do they do now? Um, so um, they meet in council. What happens here is really interesting because in one sense we can say, by the way Milton set it up, and we'll, we'll see in a minute, by the way Milton has set it up, he's actually giving us the metaphysics of evil. Now stop and think about this for a minute. We live in a temporal world, right? Body, soul, I mean, we use our reason and our senses. 
he's going to a metaphysical dimension. This is beyond the physical world. So we're in a metaphysical world. He's exploring the origins of evil, the metaphysical nature of it. If Milton's correct, what he's doing is giving us a blueprint, an explanation for every possible evil that we could experience. And we have to ask, has he done it? Does this cover all cases? Um, I, th I think, I mean, maybe somebody will pull a surprise here, but I think this, he does it actually, whether we completely agree with him, but I think he does it. Um, so let's take a look at the opening. He turned to book two. Now remember, one of the major questions that I asked last week, and I'm going to be asking it again and again and again, because to me it's one of the most troubling questions of this poem. There are all those scenes in which Milton presents Satan in ways that resemble humans. Um, he has that farewell speech, and at one point, when Satan is looking out at the devastation and f feeling that he's responsible for it, tears fall from his eyes. And I asked that question then. I'm going to come back to it because this, this to me is, is not a small question. Um, how do we understand that? Why did Milton do that? Um, um, a couple of things. Remember when the poem opens, he said, he, we talked about um, Satan as a figure and said, he, he, he seems to have no knowledge of himself. And so much of what he sees is contradictory or blind. Um, so if he's a hero, we have to ask, in, in, in what does his heroism consist? Because there are so many things in him that, are, that seem attractive, but when you look at it closely, it, they don't hold up. There's something wrong. <coughs> Um, he, he says that he's fallen with a sense of injured merit. That line, the very opening pages, remember it's um, line 98, 100, so from sense of injured merit. So there's a quality of self-pity. He's, he's there in, in a, with a sense of injured merit. God mistreated him, right? It's an injured merit. He doesn't deserve this. So he's a, wait, one of the ways in which we have to see Satan here, he's a victim. And by the way, I think that's, that's part of the appeal. In, in one instance, we have a man looking at something's wrong and blaming somebody else. So whatever else we say about Satan, he's a victim. He blames God for what happened. And, and later, you know, there will be those lines where he blames God because he said God tempted him. So it's God's fault. Um, and um, that's what we carry into book two when we watch this council unfold, okay? So, book two. High in a throne of royal state, which far outshone the wealth of Ormus and of Inn, or where the gorgeous east with richest land showst on her king's barbaric peak, pearl and gold, Satan exalted sat, by merit raised to that bad eminence, and from despair thus high uplifted beyond hope, aspires beyond thus high, insatiate to pursue vain war with heaven and success untaught, her proud imagination, his proud imagination thus displayed. 
he addresses the demons, powers, dominions, deities of heaven, for since no deep within her gulf can hold immortal vigor, though oppressed and fallen, I give not heaven for lost. From this descent, celestial virtues rising will appear more glorious and more dread than from no fall. We're going to make a better good come out of this um, than from no fall, and thus themselves to fear no second fate. Methought just right and the fixed laws of heaven did first create your leader, next free choice, with what besides in counsel or in fight hath been achieved of merit, yet this loss thus far at least recovered hath much more established than a safe unenvied throne yielded with full consent. So he's saying, by virtue of the very laws that operated in heaven, because I was the greatest one, um, I claim that, or I mean, I'm given this place as your leader. Okay? What's the irony of that? Methought just right, and the fixed laws of heaven did first create your leader. It's on the basis of, and he'll go on to say, the happier state in heaven which follows dignity might draw envy from each inferior. Who here will envy whom the highest place exposes? They've lost it all, so envy's not going to apply here. What, what's the irony here? Yeah, the irony is he's appealing to the laws of heaven to establish his place when he rejected those laws. And yet he's, he's referring to them as the basis of the authority that he has now. And then uses as a reason, who's going to envy this because it's a fallen state? So immediately, um, once again, we're faced with an irony that what he says really makes no sense. It's a contradiction. And then he says, what are we going to do? And we get these three positions, Moloch's, Belial's, and then Mammon. And I'll come to Beelzebub in a second. What are the positions? Um, go to about line 45 or so. After he stops, Moloch speaks up and says... Um, um, now fiercer by despair his trust was with the eternal to be deemed equal in strength and rather than be less cared not to be at all with that care lost went all his fear of God or hell or worse he recked not and these words thereafter spake my sentence is for open war of wiles more unexpert He's not practiced in cunning, so his position is let's fight them boldly. Um, I boast not them, let those contrive who need or when they need, not now, for while they are sit contriving, shall the rest millions that stand in arms and longing wait, the signal to ascend, sit lingering here, heaven's fugitives. Go down. Now let us rather choose armed with hell's flames and fury all at once, or heaven's high towers to force... Rest, resistless way, turning our fortunes into horrid arms against the torture. Go down again. Let such bethink them, if, if the sleepy drench of that forgetful lake benumb not still, that is, if you come to your senses, of that forgetful benumb not still, that in our proper motion we ascend up to our native seat, descend and fall to us is adverse. Who but felt of late? when the fierce foe hung in our broken rear, insulting and pursued us through the deep with that compulsion and laborious flight, we sunk thus low. The ascent is easy then. 
Go down. If there be in hell fear to be worse destroyed, what can be worse than to dwell here? Go down again. Um, when the scourge inexorably and the torturing hour causes to pen us, more destroyed than thus we should be quite abolished and expire, what fear we then? We're in torment. If we're annihilated, what is it but a release from this? So his position is open war, even if it means annihilation. Okay, that's his position. Can you, let's look at Belial. Um, Milton describes it as being slothful and lazy. and um, He says about line 120, I should be much for open war, O peers, as not behind in hate, if what was urged main reason to persuade immediate war did not dissuade me most. Notice the appeal to reason. <laughs> I hope that's the sort of basic irony to all of them. All of them are using reason, and the, the last thing you can say is that reason is making sense, even if they don't see it. They're making all these arguments. Um, when he who most excels in fact of arms, in what he counsels and in what excels mistrustful, grounds his courage on despair and utter dissolution as the scope of all his aim after some dire revenge. First, what revenge? He says, we're not going to be able to do anything. God will beat us back again. Um, go down about 140. Thus repulsed, our final hope is flat despair. We must exasperate the almighty victor to spend all his rage, and that must end us. That must be our cure to be no more. Sad cure. For who would lose though full of pain, this intellectual being whose thoughts that wander through eternity to perish rather swallowed up and lost in the wide wombs of uncreated night, devoid of sense and motion. So his position is to accommodate um, um, let's see about 190 um it makes no sense to annihilate ourselves. This would be worse war, therefore, open or concealed, alike my voice dissuades. For what can force or guile with him who, or who deceive his mind? God sees everything, knows everything. He's omnipotent. Whose eye views all things at one view. He from heaven's height, all these are motions vain, sees and derides. No, not more almighty to resist our might than wise to frustrate all our plots and wiles. Shall we then live, thus vile, the race of heaven, thus trampled, thus expelled, to suffer here? He laughs at all of this. Um, he says about 9.210, This is now our doom, which if we can sustain and bear our supreme foe, in time may much remit his anger, and perhaps thus far, um, Though in time may much remit his anger, and perhaps thus far remove, not mind us, not offending, satisfied what, with what has been. That is, if we just lay low for a while, um, his anger will lessen, and we will get along, and and we won't have to worry about all these extremes that that Moloch has just offered. Um, Mammon um, stands up. This is the third position. He says, neither one of those is an option. Um, about um, 
sorry, about line 250. He said, let us not then pursue by force impossible, by leave obtained unacceptable, though in heaven our state of splendid vassalage, but rather seek our own goods from ourselves and from our own live to ourselves. So he's saying, neither one of these extremes is rational, um, workable. Um, let's live for ourselves. Just leave things be. And you know that at that point, Beelzebub says, none of these options is real. He heard of this other world that God created. Let's seek out that world and see if we can get back at God um, um, to, to try to undo the good he's done as a way of getting back at him. And then the question becomes, who will go? And you know at that point Satan is the one who steps up. He's the hero who says he'll take that quest on. And we learn at that point that that was all a setup that Beelzebub and Satan had already arranged to make to come to that agreement on their own. So we're watching, we're watching a group of demons who are self-deceived in everything they do. I mean, that's a given. They've lost light. They're using reason. They're self-deceived in everything they do. And they don't even know that they're being deceived by Satan. And yet they're giving their wills to him. It's a setup. It's a, it's a, it's a travesty of a council. So that's one of the ironies that hangs over this. But now let me stop for a second. What's really interesting here that's important to note is that this, um, this council, the, the structure of it, um, is an exact parody of Aristotle's um, understanding of virtue. So it's taking Aristotle's understanding of virtue and turning it inside out on its head. And let me make that clear. According to Aristotle in the Ethics, Aristotle says virtue is a mean. I, I'm so sorry that I mean people dismiss that you know, virtue is a mean. You know, people laugh about that today. <clears throat> what he says in that book is amazing if you read it. He says virtue is a mean. And he makes clear that the only way we can ever become virtuous is by becoming aware of the extremes to which we're given, anger, sloth, spending money, stealing, and whatever it is, um, to be aware of the extremes that have a part in our character and work to offset them. Okay? Now, every virtue is defined according to its object. So let's say you take the object money, how you deal with money. He would say there, there are two extremes. One is um, um, wasting money, and the other one is hoarding it, niggardliness. The, the mean would be generosity, to, to know the difference between wasting it, being a spendthrift, or being niggardly, not using it when you should. Now he does that with everything. If you look at any situation, define its object, money, danger, whatever it happens to be, um, let's see, take a manner, you know, rudeness or something, whatever, be, behaving with other people. Take any situation, take a look at the object, what it is that's there, and look at its, ex, its extremes, and you can identify the virtue, and then find yourself on that scale and know what you have to do to answer it. Let's say drinking too much, or too much sex, too much food. Whatever, Dante, by the way, Dante is going to break this down. I mean, that's what purgatory is about. This is, purgatory is, is an unfolding of Aristotle. 
But here, let me take one virtue to make it clear here. Take the virtue of facing dangers. How do we deal with dangers? When dangers arise in our life, do we get unsettled and upset? You know, do we stay calm? I mean, how do we deal with dangers, things that throw us off? When, 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 our, when something puts us at risk, so how do we deal with the danger? Aristotle would say the two extremes with respect to that object, how we face dangers, are fear and rashness, okay? So some people deal with danger by running away. They just avoid it. Some people deal with dangers by becoming rash, by that is losing their reason in the way they deal with it. And we know that. I mean, we're all susceptible to these things. Virtue is courage, okay? Now, here's the interesting thing. Um, when the rash man faces a danger, how does he look at the courageous man? Hmm? Remember, here's, here's, here's the virtue. You're dealing with a frightening situation. Courage, courage is, a, is a wonderful virtue. It's, there's a paradoxical quality. It means you have to put your life at risk. You have to be willing to give up your life in order to save it. That's why I'm dealing with it, because to me it's one of the greatest of virtues. It's one of the four natural virtues. You have, you have to put your life away in order to get it. You may have to go through a blazing fire to, you know, to save yourself or somebody else. The two extremes are rashness or cowardice. My question is, how does the rash man look at the virtuous man, the courageous man? <laughs> He'd see him as a coward, right? How would the coward look at the virtuous man? Rash, right? Are you all following? This is what's interesting. Only the virtuous man knows. The rash man is going to look at the virtuous man as a coward because he doesn't know. The coward is going to look at the virtuous man as rash. It's only the virtuous man, the man who's formed good habits in virtues, that can tell the difference. And that's true for every one of the virtues. Yeah? You all following? Okay. Now take this. Do you see how it's inverted? You've got these two extremes. Open war, annihilation. Do nothing. Or the mean. And, and it, since we've inverted the whole scale of values, we're dealing with evil, none of them makes sense. So there's a parity. What, what Milton is doing is giving us the metaphysical. When I look at this, I think... There's no way he could have done this and not said, the Anglicans, the Presbyterians, you know, here, here are all the councils that the Anglicans went through, here are all the councils that the Puritans went through, you know, the, these are the defining positions with respect to every war people enter, enter it. You either put yourself at risk of being annihilated or passive, or you find a means you know, the irony here is all of this is an inversion of virtue anyway. I mean, we're not, mm -hmm. if it were Aristotle to be turned into, I, and we'd be dealing with the question of what's really virtue? What would be the wisest thing to do? The, the demons are doing this, and there's no wisdom to what they're doing. This is, this is a deception. So he's playing it off against a scale of virtues. 
the real understanding of virtue. Now, before we leave it, I just want to, what's wrong, let's take each of the, what's wrong with Moloch's position? Open war and annihilation. What's the irony of that position? They just lost. Hmm? They just lost, but he's saying, he's not just saying they did just lose. He's not just saying we'll just lose again. He's saying open war and annihilation. Fight to the death and then be done with it. It's over. You know you're going to lose, you know you're going to die, you're going to be annihilated, you might as well go down. Hold on. God made humans and angels with immortal souls. They are in being. Immortally. Yes? Immortal. Can it be up to an angel? If a man takes his life, will that annihilate his soul? No, it won't. Right? If a man's killed in battle, is he dead? According to Christianity. I mean, he's dead. But in the next life, he's got an immortal soul. Right? Is it up to a demon to annihilate his soul? Can he do that? He can't. And I'm not... That's That to me is a... I myself don't believe... I, I don't see God doing that. God made his creation. They're either going to suffer eternally or, 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 or God do away with the way he did things. But anyway, you see the irony. He's saying open war or if, we, if we're destroyed, who cares? We won't be around anymore. Is it up for them to say that? Can they just do away with their souls? If God defeats them, is he going to annihilate them? They've already been defeated. They're not annihilated. God's left them to suffer the, the consequences, the punishments of their own actions. Take Belial's action, accommodation. Um, what was his position that we just um, accommodate? Um, it's, it's a sort of ontological path. If this is a, a self-deception about being destroyed ontologically, that metaphysically you can... This is the opposite. It's ontological passivity. We'll just... I think was your word, lay low and accommodate and he'll learn to ignore us and we'll get along. What's the irony of that position? You do nothing. I mean, you just, you're just... What's the irony of it? Huh? God's not going to forget they're there. Yeah. Yeah. If, if they've turned away from being and they're in torment because they violated God's... I mean, it's the opposite of annihilation. Um, will their torment... Will, he says, eventually he'll remit. Is God going to... I mean, Marcy, is God going to just forget and remit and give up his... That is, is God going to cease to be God? Is he going to change to accommodate these demons so he'll remit, forget that it ever happened? They've, they've chosen to separate themselves from God. Remember, God is all being. That's an ontological condition. Being is. I am that am. He is. He made angels and, and humans in his image. There's something in us that's, that has a divine end. We have an immortal soul. So do the, so do the angels. If they have an immortal soul, we'll just letting things go, ease their torment. 
Um, or will God at some point remit, change his mind, and maybe he'll be merciful? Okay. What about the? Well, I mean, he says none of this is sensible um, to to live to live for ourselves. Shouldn't they already know the answer? Well, go ahead. So, what's the? So, draw the conclusion so, then. So we're talking about immortality, right? Mm-hmm. In that scenario, the past, the present, and the future are all one and the same thing. Right. Well, eternity. So the whole discussion amongst them is futile in itself. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. It's so self-deceiving. I mean, that's the irony that I mentioned. Or the, it, the whole thing. They're using reason, and it's interesting to me, if you think about the use of reason here, I, can't, I cannot think about this without thinking Scots, Anglicans, going to war, you know, the, all, the Civil War. Um, these are the positions that people take using reason. Milton's saying, at, at least with respect to evil, remember, this is turning Aristotle on its head, but with respect to evil, it's all, it's all futile. It's stupid. It's self-deceiving. None of this is real. We're, we're watching creatures use reason, and I'm assuming that when we read it, most of us are taken up hearing these arguments as having some plausibility. Yeah? They seem rational. When you look at what's actually going on, you have to come away and shake your head and say, this is all a travesty. The whole thing is a travesty. Was that Paul Murphy said? Sorry? Was that Paul Murphy said when you enter hell you lose the good of the intellect? That's Dante, but Homer, Homer said about hell in the Iliad, they're, gib- <laughs> they're gibbering idiots. That you lose everything from this life. Dante's the one, and we'll see that when we, when we do the Inferno. When you enter hell, you lose the good of the intellect. How could it be otherwise? If, you, if God is all reason, if God is all reason and all love, all being eternally, it is now, it will never be that way. It will never change. And you turn from him, what's going to happen to your reason? I'll tell you, this is, this is on a personal note. This is, probably, this is on a personal note. One of the most frightening things about hell for me, personally, there's this image, those of you will stick around when we get to the inferno, there's at one level in the middle of hell, in the burning fires, this one of the souls comes to Dante, and he runs off, I think he's carrying a flag, and, and Dante's description of him, it's like he's, he's running off as if he's still in a race winning, and T.S. Eliot commented, he said, he, he never could figure out that passage. To me, it seems absolutely clear, but if you're in a, let's say, if you're in a, you're playing loose with God and you, let's say, you, you, want to, you spend your life wanting to get ahead. Let's say that's what motivates you more than anything. And you die. What's the one thing you're going to take into the next life? Isn't that going to define your action forever? If that's what makes you lose your mind now, I mean, that where you justify whatever it is you're doing, and that's your activity, and it really defines you. Let's say you're a victim, like Satan, and you go through your life playing a victim, and you go to hell. What are you going to do for eternity? And will you have any ability to reflect on it? You won't, because that's set. You're not aware of something else. You're in it. So the, the single moment will extend forever. Whatever you're doing will be a fixed thing 
forever. You won't be aware of time, right? Things are not going to change. You're not in a divided state. Are you all following? That's the way it will be. That one minute is eternity because nothing will change. We're, we're in a world of change. We're aware of, we can make contrast. When you're in hell, it doesn't exist. Is that clear? Is it? Yep. So what we're watching here, is that clear? It's like your worst day every day, your worst day. Say? You repeat your worst day every day. Every minute, because there is no extension of time. There's no duration. There's no change. That's eternity. It's now, 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 now. That now is timeless. That's a frightening thought, because if, if, we, if any of us live in deceptions, Sorry? You're assuming there's only one major deception. Sorry, I'm assuming what? You're assuming one major deception. So if, so if a man's deception is greed, let's say, when he's going to live in hell for eternity and whatever the punishment is for greed, well, no, he could have a whole slew of other issues. I, I know, I know. But, I mean, no, Mark, I, I tried to qualify that when I said that. I, because we live in a divided state. I'm, what I'm trying to do is give an illustration of what we take into the next life. Um, if, if we allow some something to so preoccupy that it costs us eternity, that's, that's my, I'm just trying to illustrate this. Whatever that is for any of us, that's what we take into the, that, that's why what happens in this life is so important to us, the choices we make, our awareness of ourselves, are we, are we just going through the motions, doing the same thing again? What I'm saying is, this, this is, What's frightening about this, if you look at it, is what you see is that it's all a deception. We can read it and hear these arguments being given, but when you look at it, they're absolutely self-deceived. They're all contradictory. None of them make sense. And, and the part of the appeal to me, it seems, is because those are the arguments we ourselves make when we line up in whatever we do with our lives. It can be at home in a family discussion. It can be with a war. We're watching reason deceiving itself in what, in what the creatures are doing with it, okay? Um, look quickly, I want to, because I want to get to book three. Sure, brief. Brief, since their reason is faulty, which it is, but they are by definition, because of what's happened, because of the fall, they by themselves are faulty. So is it possible for them to even make sense even if they wanted to, they, they can't? Just by definition. So why, so why would anyone try to make sense of something that can't be made sense? Of? Anybody, I think that's a good. Does anybody want to answer? Because they don't know that they can't make sense of something. Yeah. So I think smart criminals are in prison. I think we're. Re I think this is our first insight into what Milton thinks is the greatest sin, and that's despair. And I think what we're seeing here is what despair looks like if you are, in fact, suffering from. Answer Mark's question, or are you take? Well, I think that is the. I think that is the question. Flesh it out, because I think you know what. When you when you when you when you're at despair, where you honestly believe that there is no redemption, there's nothing else. There's nothing else. Then, to me, I, I I can't imagine what that state must look like, but it sure looks like it could look like this. You know, you you start becoming totally irrational because there's nothing to build on. I mean, it is in fact. And I, I think later, I forget which chapter it is, Satan kind of, for the moment, thinks, well, maybe 
maybe there's redemption, and he says, no, that's never going to happen. So to me, this is our first look from Milton in terms of what he considers <coughs> the greatest sin is and what it, what it might look like. Doug, can you just repeat what you said so everybody can hold on to the two of those things because I think they both answer mm -hmm. Mark. You mean what I said to Mark? Yeah. Well, because they don't know that they're, that they're totally irrational. They think they're being rational. They're exercising their voice, just not their Let me put it in, because I'm going to give it back to you. If God made man and angels in his image, we, we share these qualities with him. We have intellects and wills. So when we go into the next life, we're still going to have intellects and wills, whether, whether heaven or hell, right? Yeah? We still carry. That's our nature. And, and, and we, have a tra we have an immortal soul, angels and humans. So we carry that immortal soul, and its faculties are an intellect and a will into the next life, yeah? So we have intellects in the next life, so... So they just don't know that their intellects don't work anymore. I mean, they're self-deceiving. They're using reason. Except I want to say, I want to say, if there's any reason for being here, it's to help give some clarity to our intellects, or I would have, I would not be doing this. Because I'm not, I'm not a Calvinist. I don't believe our minds are corrupt. I believe reason and our wills are our greatest gifts. But I also believe they're the ones that can get most tarnished because we can, we can use them in the wrong way. Remember my opening comment last week? I think I, I, think I said it to both groups. That I, one of the most important things for us to carry into our readings is, is to identify with all the characters. If we start sorting ourselves out because we think we're virtuous, and we don't want to look at Satan, or, or we start reading books because we want to identify with the heroes and, or the victims, or, then I think we're in serious trouble in our reading. Good readers have to, we, if, there's a, if there's a prophetic aspect of literature, it's in that it, it shows us things that very often we don't want to see about ourselves. We have to learn to see ourselves everywhere. Milton's raised that to a pitch now because the person he's put, or the creature he's put in front of, is Satan. So if there's evil within us, we should be taking a very serious look at this guy if we have any concern about answering him in ourselves. Satan is doing a very good job. He has evaluated the situation. He has nominated his people, and he's going to reorganize. So he's He's done a, a great thing. He's got it put together again. He's doing what a good leader should do. Yes. And, but now, and the question is... <laughs> well, I don't want to go there, but he's doing what a good leader should do. Invert that with Aristotle in a world of virtue, and the, a person doing the same, or parallel corresponding things could be accomplishing good things. Yeah. But here we're looking at evil. We're looking at the fall. Can we get to book three? Sure. Oh, wait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait. No. And wait, before, sorry, before we get to, um, I, I want to quickly look at something in two. You know that he offers himself. He's the one who takes up this difficult task. And it's one of the reasons that 
some people find him so attractive because he's willing to risk this, okay? Now, the interesting thing, I don't want to read this, but you know that when he sets off, he has to enter this um, condition that's described as chaos and chance and contingency. And it seems to me it's among the most, I, as I read it, among the most powerful and easiest to overlook because they don't have, the, these passages don't have the dramatic quality that Satan does in his meetings or with the temptation with Adam and Eve. But if you read it, what, what we're seeing is Satan is daring extinction because he goes to the very edge of existence and it's, it's one of the things we have to keep in mind because if we don't, we don't see how much he's daring. What Milton is showing is that he's, what he's doing is taking him to the verge of nothingness outside of the, the world, as, the created world as we know it. And it's on his way here that he, you remember, he comes upon sin and death. Death confronts him. He's this um, grotesquely ugly figure. And then um, when the two of them are about to fight, this strange creature interposes herself. Sorry. Yeah, on on about line 740 or so. She puts herself between the two figures and says, O Father, this is about 225, O Father, what intend thy hand, she cried, against thy only son, what fury. Satan is shocked and says, Why in this infernal veil first met thou callest me Father, and that phantom callest my son? I know thee not. Not ever saw thee now. And he'll go on. She describes that moment when in the, in the commission of sin, when he turns from God, she springs from his head like... Um, Athena. So this is the inversion of what happens in the pagan um, Olympiad when Athena, whose wisdom, whose wisdom, an actual embodied figure, she's a rook, comes out of Zeus's head. Except here, it's sin. She said, um, she says, in darkness while thy head flames thick and fast through forth, till on the left side opening wide, likest to thee in shape and continents bright. Then shining heavenly fair, a goddess armed out of thy head, I sprung, amazement seized, all the host of heaven back they recoiled, afraid at first, and called me sin, and for a sign portentous held me, but familiar grown I pleased, and with attractive graces won the most averse thee chiefly, who full off thyself and me, thy perfect image viewing, became enamored. That, that is, he loved his own sin so much that what did he do? Rapes her. It's an act of incest and, or, or commit, yeah, commits incest and produces death. Now, I, wanted, I don't want to take much time here except to, to point out one thing and then raise a, a question that I don't want, to, don't want to really give any time to. What we learn about, about Satan from this passage, once again, is he doesn't know himself. He doesn't recognize what happened. He doesn't see himself in this act. What we learn about him is that the one thing that motivates him is self-love. He loved himself more than that, and he became so enamored of himself that he makes love to himself. So that's one of the images of the nature of sin. A person loving himself, or Satan, and this, an angel loving himself so much that he loves himself more than God. 
He's so enamored of that that everything he does is, in a sense, incestuous. He's making love with himself and everything he does. This is all for him. Everything he does is for him. Quickly, here's the problem. And I don't want to take any time unless somebody's got a quick answer. Everything up to this point that Milton's done is realistic. It's all in naturalistic terms. There's no abstractions. Satan's a real figure. Beelzebub's a real figure. Moloch's a real figure. All these are a figure. Suddenly on this journey, we're brought to a point where he's dealing with allegorical abstractions. They're not real people. This is sin and death. So um, violently, Milton's treatment takes us out of this realistic world with these abstractions. And we know what makes it more ridiculous is that they're going to build a bridge following him that will take us to the world so that sin can continue to move in that way. Any, any quick thought? I don't, want to, I don't want to dwell on it, but I want to point this out because it's going to be a real concern later when I raise what to me are more serious questions. But. Are you saying that Satan created sin and not God since God created all things? Sin is a product of Satan's self-love. It's an image. Uh, it's an image. It's an allegorical image of of the product of what he does from his self-love. That's sin. God didn't. God created nothing that wasn't good. Everything created is good. Evil comes into the world when man turns away from God, and this is what we've got here. And you keep that on your mind. I want to come back to that later because it's a troubling concern for me. At this, at this point, Milton introduces into his narrative a very realistic narrative, abstractions, allegories. Um, quickly, book three. This is the second of a number of invocations. We already saw the first one, remember, in book one. Here's in book three. This is the second. We'll get a couple more as we go through it. It's an appropriate time for Milton to make an invocation again because he's just come out of the darkness. He's leaving the infernal realms of hell and he's going into heaven and he's asking for a greater light. And it's at this point we learn that he's blind and he's asking that light to illumine his, his soul. Hail, holy light, offspring of heaven, firstborn, or of thy eternal, co-eternal being, may I express thee unblamed, since God is light and never but an unapproached light, dwelt from eternity, dwell then in thee, bright effluence of bright essence in create. Well, hearest thou rather pure ethereal stream, whose fountain who shall tell, before the sun, before the heaven thou wert. So there was a light before God said that there be light. So he's talking about in some sense, what we have to consider invisible light. This was the light that was there before he created the sun to give creation light. Before the sun, before the heavens, thou word, and at the voice of God, as with a mantle didst invest the rising world of waters, dark and deep, one from the void and formless infinite, thee I revisit now with bolder wing, escape the Stygian pool, um, Go down, thee I revisit safe and feel thy sovereign vital lamp, but thou revisitest not these eyes that roll in vain to find thy piercing ray and find no dawn, so thick a drop serene has quenched their orbs or dim suffusion veiled. Yet not the more cease I to wander where the muses haunt. 
even though he's lost his sight, he's going to do what the muses did in the ancient world. And he will make allusion to a number of ancient poets who were thought to be blind, Homer among them. About line 40. Thus with the year seasons return, but not to me returns day or the sweet approach of even or morn or sight of vernal bloom or summer's rose of flocks or herds or human face divine. But cloud instead and ever during dark surrounds me from the cheerful ways of men cut off and for the book of knowledge fair presented with the universal blank of nature's works to me expunged and raised and wisdom at one entrance quite shut out. He has no contact with the world anymore. Remember, he shortly before this began, he began to go blind and had to, um, what do you call it, speaking to us, dictate um, um, the rest of his poem. So much the rather thou celestial light shine inward and the mind through all her powers irradiate. There plant eyes, all midst from thence purge and disperse that I may see and tell of things invisible to mortal sight. So it's at this point that he takes us into the heavenly council about line um, 95. And we, we're presented with God the Father watching Satan begin his quest. Um, and he's, he's speaking to the Son and the, 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 the host of angels. Um, and shall pervert, for man will hearken to his blozening lies and easily transgress. He says Satan's going to this new created world and he's going to um, be the cause of man falling. He already knows that now. By some false guile pervert and shall pervert, for man will hearken to his glozing lies and easily transgress the soul command. So pledge of his obedience. So will fall he and his faithless progeny. Whose fault? Whose but his own? Ingrate. He had of me all he could have. Suffer. Can anybody characterize God at this moment? Let me repeat those lines. Shall pervert for man will hearken to his gloss and he lies and easily transgress the soul command. So pledge of his obedience. So will fall he and his faithless progeny. Whose fault? Whose but his own? Ingrate. He had of me all he could have. I made him just and right. Sufficient to have good stood, though free to fall. Such I created all the ethereal power. Did anybody want to take a stab? I'm going to read more. But at this point, any any characterization of God? Hmm? Disappointment. Why? Well, he, he sees a man that's going to fail, and he believes that he gave him everything he needed to resist the temptation. By their own free will, they're going to choose the wrong direction. Anybody else? Doug, do you have a thought? Justifying. Can you say, I don't know that anybody heard. Justifying, self-justifying. Explain that. He's going through all the good that he did. I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this, I gave them everything, and they're going to screw it up anyway. And I gave them the ability to stand and not screw it up, and they're still going to screw it up. And even that line... Uh, whose fault? Can anybody hear God saying that? <laughs> I, I can't hear. I mean, it, it's a little bit defensive or, or, self, or accusing. It, it's hard for me to see that in God. 
um, justifying, I think, I think that's where Suzanne was going, I'm not sure, but keep that in mind. We're, by the way, Dante doesn't show us God. Remember in the Jewish tradition, the, the ark, they, they didn't present God visible because they knew the dangers of presenting him. Because, in fact, it's one of the reasons they were struggling with Christianity because Christianity is full of imagery, images. And the, the Jews in that sense are, you know, this, do not put up false gods. And Dante doesn't show God or Christ. Milton does. And here's our first representation of the Father. What do we take away from Milton's representation of the Father? And wait, 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 just, I don't, I, don't want to, I don't want to go there, just, I want to, I just would like to alert, from this point on, be aware of Milton's presentation of the Father and the Son, because he's going to rend, render divine reality, remember, he's going to justify the ways of God to men, and now he's showing us that heavenly sphere. So he goes on, ingrate, he had of me all he could have, I made him just and right, sufficient to have stood, the free to fall, such I created all the powers. What praise could they receive? What pleasure I from such obedience paid when will and reason? Reason also is choice. This is so to me, you can't separate reason and free will. Useless in vain, a freedom both despoiled, made passive both, had served necessity, not me. They therefore, as to right belong, so were created, nor can justly accuse their maker or their making or their fate as if predestination overruled their will, disposed by absolute decree or high foreknowledge. They themselves decreed their own revolt, not I. This is pointedly against Calvin. Absolutely pointedly. Because you know that Calvin argued that God, he could understand God's foreknowledge, and more, moreover, some men were predestined to damnation. Milton is saying categorically, absolutely not. He gave all men free will. They, f they fell by their own power. So he's consciously taking on Calvin right here, his disagreement with him. Um, going over about 85. And now through all restraint broke loose. He wings his way not far off heaven in the precincts of light directly toward this new created world. He's, gonna, he's watching them knowing He's going there, and then he says, um, about line 125 or so, he made them free. They trespass authors to themselves in all, both what they judge and what they choose. For no, I formed them free, and free they must remain till they enthrall themselves, else must change their nature. I, I must change. Is God going to do that? I mean, it goes to Mark's way. There's no way he's going to change. God is God. He's good. He's all goodness. He can't. He can't change. He he can't commit an evil. It's against his nature who he is. I else must change their nature and revoke the high decree, unchangeable, eternal, which ordained their freedom. They themselves ordained their fall. The first sort by their own suggestion fell, self-tempted, self-depraved. Man falls deceived by the other first. Man therefore shall find grace. The other none. Is that clear? The angels chose. They can. They cannot receive a mercy. They. That was their choice. The greatest thing he gave creatures was their free will. They. They made that choice. Man can receive because he was tricked. 
the other none, in mercy and justice both, through heaven and earth, so shall my glory excel, but mercy first and last shall brightness shine. Now, it's at this point that the son says, are you going to lose all of this? For should man finally be lost? This is about 150. Should man thy creature late so love thy youngest son fall circumvented thus by fraud? He said, how can you do this? Go down a few lines. Um, by him corrupted, or wilt thou thyself abolish thy creation and unmake for him what for thy glory thou hast made? The father replies, O son, in whom my soul hath chief delight, son of my bosom, son who art alone, my word, my wisdom, man shall not quite be lost, but saved who will, yet not of will in him, but grace in me. Man cannot win his salvation. It's only by God's will that he can. But grace in me freely vouchsafe, once more I will renew his lap powers, though forfeit and enthralled by sin to foul exorbitant desires upheld by me. Um, he has to do it that way. By me upheld that he may know how frail his fallen condition is, and to me owe all his deliverance. And to none but me, some I have chosen of peculiar grace, elect above all the rest, so is my will, the rest shall hear me. He will call to men, they will refuse. Um, um, he says over about line 200, um, he will call them, um, they may stumble on the deeper fall, and none but such from mercy I exclude. But yet all is not done, man disobeying, disloyal, breaks his fealty and sins against the high supremacy of heaven, affecting Godhead. He thinks he can do this himself as if he were God. Because to do that would be to act as if, you were, as if we were sufficient to ourselves. We're creatures. We depend on him. Th this is God's argument. Satan's going to reverse that we'll, in an argument that he has with the angels in heaven. Because he's going to say, I create myself. Very modern. Very modern. God is saying no. Um, he hath his whole posterity must die, die he, or justice must. I must change my nature, give up justice, unless for him some other able and as willing pay the rigid satisfaction. It's at that point that the son says he will do it, and the, the council in heaven ends with this, the host of angels singing a glory to God in Christ, or the son, it's not Christ, it's the son, for what he's um, going to take on. It's at this point that... Um, the, the, uh, the scene shifts to Satan making his way towards Eden. Remember, he lands in Eden. Turn to about line 550. He descends and he sees this extraordinary new world. Um, and it's interesting because he likens himself to Aeneas and Odysseus and some other figures. The line that I just want to end with, just, just to ask you to give some thought to that. It says, um, he comes, remember he goes to the sun and he hates the sun. Um, on line 550, the goodly prospect of some foreign land foreseen or some renowned met 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 metropolis with glistening spires and pinnacles adorned, which now the rising sun gilds with his beams, such wonder seized Though after heaven seen the spirit malign, but much more envied sees at sight of all this world beheld so fair. Father, here we 
Star reported a guy walking around. So just sorry. No, there's a man in a t-shirt and short uh, black shorts walking around. So if he just happens to come by, uh, just let us know. You know? No, I'm good. Okay. Thank you. I apologize. Right. Um, Satan looks at this new creation with wonder. So once again, here's my question. Is Satan, if this is satanic, if this is a demon turned from God, what's Milton doing in showing him experiencing wonder? Is it believable? Why does he do that? Let me just leave it. Um, you know that he continues on his, on his journey on about line 680. He comes to Ur Uriel, the angel who is guarding the gates here, um, to this new world and to the heaven right at this meeting point between the two worlds. And Uriel doesn't see through him. Um, Satan is described as taking on the figure of a lesser angel and appearing to Uriel and saying, he wants to see this new land and ask directions. The bond, or line 670 or so. So he says, give me directions. Um, the universal maker we may praise who justly hath driven out his rebel foes to deepest hell and to repair that loss created this new happy race of men. Why, according to Milton here, or Satan, why did God create the world? Stop and think about the implications of this just for a second. Our understanding traditionally has always been God created all creation in an act of love, freely. Here, the implication is he's doing it to replace a loss, to repair that loss. We're going to get another phrase later that's going to be, to me, even more troubling. But at this point, it's to repair that loss, he's going to, to make up that loss, to compensate for it, he's going to create this new world. So spake the false dissembler unperceived, for neither man nor angel can discern hypocrisy, the only evil that walks invisible except to God alone by his permissive will. And he will ask his question and then he will um, go on and book four, um, by the way, book four, five, six to me are the center. So Satan is coming to Eden, Eden the, the plot um, um, is reaching a climax. We're gonna, we're gonna get to the temptation shortly. I, I think these are extraordinary scenes because Satan's gonna see Adam and Eve, the, these newly created creatures, the, what Milton does with them is extraordinary. And we're going to watch these two worlds meet. This figure from hell coming to tempt Adam and Eve and try to destroy this creation. One last question before we stop. How believable is it that one angel could deceive another? Any questions about that? Well, they have free will. So I guess they could. Wasn't Satan more powerful before he, before he was sent to hell? Right. He, he was more powerful. He had, he was either more savvy or he had more trickery or whatever, and he fooled, fooled the first time. He wasn't fooled the second time. Uriel. Uriel. Yeah. <clears throat> Uriel doesn't see through him. When he goes out to Eden, Uriel's going to see 
some actions in him that's making him suspicious, and then he's going to go to Gabriel, and Gabriel's going to get um, Satan. Let me put it this way. In the first book, when Milton describes the angels fallen, he describes them as having lost their luster. The brightness was gone. There was a comparison to the um, morning sun rising, but behind mists. When a creature's... If, here, this is really important. Hold on to everybody, because this is not a small matter for me. Manichaeism, a heresy to the church, Manichaeism believes that there's this endless conflict between good and evil. Evil takes a material form. Goodness is spiritual. Okay? Matter is bad. Spirit's good. Um, the Catholic belief is that evil is not an actual thing in itself, as it is for a Manichaean. The Catholic tradition, Christian understanding, I think Milton would share this, um, is that evil, I'm not sure that what Milton, which actually, I'm not sure. Evil is a privation. If good and evil are co-eternal, there is no reason not to choose evil. The, the traditional understanding, philosophic, this is the philosophic tradition, the Catholic tradition, is evil is a privation. It's not a good in itself. It's not a thing in itself. It's a privation. Once you turn away from God, you begin to lose something of yourself. Right? If he's the source of all being, and we participate in being, turning away from being means we lose something. Until finally, we're, I mean, when, in the middle of the book, we're going to see all the demons are going to be shrunken to these ash-like creatures. I mean, they're, they're going to have almost no identity at all because they've turned from being. This is a serious concern for me because of the way he presents the angels, the, or the devils, the fallen creatures. When you turn from God, is there no effect? Because he s says... They faded. He describes Satan as having scars of thunder in his face. He's going to describe him as carrying hell with him wherever he goes. He can't not carry it. And yet there are these deceptions that go on among angels. I'm just asking, how believable is that? What, 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 why, what is Milton doing here? Um, it, it, does he not... Does he not see evil as a privation, even though he describes Satan as losing things all along? And if he does, how can he do this? Is it for the interest of the plot? For what he has to do with this hero, this heroic figure? What's going on? Because there are lots, there's a number of inconsistencies like this that run through the book. What's Milton doing? How are we to read that? What do we learn about this from what he's doing? Is that question clear enough? Is everybody clear? If, if, an angel turn, if a human being turns from God, can he continue to grow in power? Yeah. Socrates, Boethius, Thomas, there won't be a thinker who would say, the more you turn away from God, the more you lose your powers of goodness. You, you'll be less and less capable to do whatever it is you have to do. And we're, we even just watched this in the opening scene because we're, watch, we're watching these devils play out this council, and what we're learning is how, how stupidly futile the whole thing is. They think they're doing, if, if we had time to go through the Olympic Games, you watch the Milt's description of the Olympic Games and their philosophy, their attempt to philosophize with each other, everything they say is ridiculous. Everything they do is ridiculous and they don't see it. So what's he doing here? 
in, in this exchange between these two angels. Four and five were in Eden and Adam and Eve. They're extraordinary chapters. So, Oh, thank you. Not a problem. Thank you again.